Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian, and a very happy 75th birthday to the United States Air Force. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. A brutal week on Wall Street on signs that a recession is looming. U.S. inflation rose. The Federal Reserve is expected to increase borrowing rates by as much as 1% and a 22% drop in FedEx on declining shipping, which to many is the clearest indicator that an economic slowdown is around the corner. Further adding to market jitters, China sanctioned Ted Colbert, Boeing's defense, space, and security chief executive, and Raytheon's Greg Hayes, evidence that the great decoupling between America and China is accelerating. Rebuked by both China and India in the wake of his dismal performance in the war he started against Ukraine, Vladimir Putin is vowing to wage a more brutal campaign as evidence emerges of Russian atrocities in liberated uh, areas of Ukraine. Inflation is rising on both sides of the Atlantic in food and energy. Britain is capping energy prices for firms. And in her State of Europe address, European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen made crystal clear Russia was to blame and that while enormous progress has been made to help Ukraine and bolster the internal resilience of the bloc, more hard times lie ahead. And speaking of hard times, Raytheon Technologies, that in the wake of its merger with United Technologies as a leading maker of commercial aviation products from avionics to engines, said that it expects Boeing's narrowbody market share to decline to 40% by 2025, an issue we've been discussing on this program since this program was founded in 2016. Airbus holds its capital markets day. Uh, next week, they will give us better insights into the outlook for the commercial air travel sector as the economy becomes rockier. Chinese regulators are readying to certify the C919 and testing of the adaptive engine transition program uh, is wrapping up as all eyes are on the Pentagon, whether or not uh, the new engine developed, uh, new engines developed either by uh, General Electric or Pratt and Whitney uh, will end up powering uh, the F-35, General Electric claims that its engine, the XA-100, uh, offers a 30% increase in range, which could add relevance to the F-35 in a Pacific theater, uh, something which senior uh, Pacific commanders have discussed in the past. And a look ahead to the Air Force Association's Airspace Cyber Conference and Trade Show outside Washington, D.C. Joining us to discuss all of this and more are Dr. Rocket Ron Epstein of Bank of America Merrill Lynch, Sash Tusa of the independent equity research firm Agency Partners, and Richard Abalafia of the Aerodynamic Advisory Consultancy. Everybody, thanks very much for joining us. It's great to be here, Vago. Wouldn't be a weekend without it. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Vago. Pleasure to be on, as always, Vago. Thank you. Uh, thank you all uh, very much for joining us. And before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report, and Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And we're a proud Farnborough International Airshow media partner, where our coverage of Britain's leading airshow was sponsored by Farnborough International and Leonardo DRS. And check out our weekly podcasts, Cavus Ships, hosted by our contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our producer, Chris Cervello, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters, and the downlink with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful weekly look uh, at all things space. Everybody, thanks very much again for joining us, Ron. Uh, you start us off every week. Start us off. Uh, you sent uh, us all a brief text on Tuesday. It's brutal out there. 
uh, walk us through what made it so brutal and how the group performed. Yeah, so that you know, it got kind of worse as those as the week went on. I mean, the the mix of everything from uh, worries about inflation and then kind of really the, the cherry on the cake was, uh, uh, or the Sunday, whatever you want to call it, uh, was uh, FedEx reporting uh, on Thursday and you know, missing their guide by by a lot and taking their their um, numbers down, you know, which sort of freaked everybody out about you know what's going on in in the world economy. Uh, just to give you a feel for that, so FedEx was down uh, 23% of the week, and most of that was on Friday. Um, when you look at other things, um, the 10-year uh, was just above 3.4% um, uh, uh, on its way to 3.5%. If you actually round up, it would be 3.5%. Uh, mortgage rates for the first time in over a decade uh, got over 6%, uh, which is, uh, you know, gets people a little bit worried about the housing market. Um, the VIX, which we've been talking about for a while, was back at its higher end of the range. We've seen it in at, at 26. So it was it was it was pretty pretty brutal out there. When you look at uh, our our coverage, uh, just to give you a good feel for what was going on there, uh, Boeing was down uh, about eight and a half percent on the week. Uh, Raytheon was down three percent, uh, and then the defense names were the the best performers uh, for the week. Uh, Northrop was down about. Um, uh, a little over 1%. Lockheed was down just under 2%. General Dynamics was down just under 2%. So uh, in, a, in, a, you know, in a pretty a pretty tough week, defense really was uh, the outperformer. Uh, and uh, I think that gives you a good feel for everything that went on in the week. And, and just, I should have said, the S&P itself was down about 5% of the week. So the, the defense stocks did outperform the S&P pretty meaningfully. Uh, and, you know, as we've seen, uh, you know, the market has been sort of pitch pulling and, you know, up, up and down, up and down and whether or not it's, uh, uh, you know, it's, it, these are all temporary bounces or temporary drops is unclear. But again, I mean, the consensus is recession is coming. Uh, and once people are looking for a recession, they will find reasons uh, to buy into it. Right. I mean, in terms of collective psychology and what drives the market, um, Sash, uh, downplaying any of the fundamentals that are going into that. Right. I mean, this is kind of a, um, you know, something that we've been expecting and discussing a lot as everybody is. Uh, Sash, walk us through uh, the week uh, in uh, Europe and how UK and European forms uh, performed, uh, right? I mean, a lot of activity, um, you know, mentioned what the trust government is doing in terms of energy, uh, even though the nation is very preoccupied um, with, uh, in, the, in the wake of the passing of Her Majesty uh, and the funeral, obviously, uh, uh, tomorrow morning, our, our time, um, you know, w- walk us through what are some of the drivers and dynamics, right? Ursula von der Leyen and EU still working on a whole variety of measures, not just to reduce energy dependence, uh, but resilience within uh, within the bloc, as well as a lot of economic moves, folks taking on a lot of debt uh, to, to try to uh, do this. Um, walk, walk us through the week and how the group performed. Okay, so listen, the, um, it, it was a very similar pattern to uh, what Ron described. Civil stocks uh, led the way down. Um, Airbus, you know, is off nearly ten percent uh, this week, probably, probably about eight and eight three quarter percent uh, over the week, um, because it is the bellwether. Interestingly, Dassault Aviation also had a pretty bad week. Um, the reason there being that the market is treating Dassault at the moment as a business jet company uh, rather than a military aircraft business. Um, now, given that Dassault has got a military aircraft backlog that's taking it through the decade now as a consequence of the 
both the Indonesian Rafale order and the huge United Arab Emirates order. That is perverse, but um, I suppose it's one of the problems of being a sort of, you know, a multi-industry uh, company is that the market can decide to take a particular like or a particular dislike of, of one division at any at any one time, and that, and that completely overshadows the, the rest of the business. Defence stocks, relatively unchanged in the week, but uh, I, you know, uh, it certainly unchanged on on slightly on the downside rather than anything else. So it was a it was a very very tough week, but the market's absolutely taking its lead from uh, Wall Street at the moment. Um, energy is one of the bigger issues uh, in Europe at the moment. Uh, the uh, UK government announced an enormous uh, package of uh, support both for business, but actually more importantly, capping the prices or the maximum prices that uh, uh, house, households will pay for. Uh, power and uh, power and gas and so forth as well, um, and this is a tens and tens of billions of pound uh, annual you know annual cost. So the question is going to be how long that how long the UK government can actually afford to to go on doing it. But it's pretty important because doing that takes a huge cut out of inflation. Uh, if you'd looked at uh, forecasts for inflation even three weeks ago, two three weeks ago, uh, there were credible forecast that UK inflation was going to be up at 14, 15% plus uh, by the end of the year. By capping uh, energy bills, as the government has said it's going to do, that probably keeps inflation at about 10%, which from where we have, you know, that, that's an enormous change on last year, but that would be, an, you know, still pretty important in terms of the political, uh, uh, political benefit uh, there. Uh, but you're absolutely right. In the UK, um, the, you know, the trust government announced the uh, energy support scheme uh, and since you know uh, really almost nobody has noticed I think that when we cut you know in the period after the Majesty of the Queen's funeral then politics will start to resume again it'll be very interesting to see whether uh, you know the government comes back slightly less callow slightly more uh, you know sort of streetwise and uh, and and starts to to really have an impact uh, as it is you know the government was formed and within uh, within hours, uh, it overwhelmed in, in terms of the news cycle. Europe, uh, yeah, actually, right, Ursula von der Leyen's um, State of Europe speech was was very good. I mean, you know, I think uh, the EU can't do as much as they would like about energy costs because most energy costs are still dealt with on a national basis, but they are looking at windfall taxes where possible. More importantly, they're looking at uh, some form of either uh, of taxation or cap on uh, Russian, uh, uh, Russian-derived uh, energy, gas in particular, uh, as a means of making sure that uh, Russia doesn't actually benefit from uh, high, the high prices for the uh, remaining gas that, it, that it's delivering into Europe. Resilience is a multi-quarter, actually it's a multi-year issue. Uh, but I think probably the most positive thing that's come out of Germany, and Germany is the big consumer of Russian gas, is that German gas stocks are at a very, very healthy level. You know, they are 85% plus um, uh, full. And that is starting to give even Germany the ability to look through uh, the coming winter, unless it's incredibly cold. If it is incredibly cold, all, all bets are off. Um, and that buys Europe some time politically against uh, Russia and uh, some time politically and fiscally against um, the, the huge cost of, of subsidies, which will otherwise be required to you know, make power in all its forms, uh, you know, accessible to people. 
Um, the, the, the race for uh, European unity is on now, especially since so many right-wing parties uh, gain influence in Italy. Uh, a new uh, prime minister that's going to succeed Mario Draghi that celebrates Benito Mussolini. Uh, and we have Swedish Democrats that are kingmakers in Sweden. We've, um, I, I believe it's in Bulgaria or Romania, and I apologize where the Liberal Party was is out. Uh, there are demonstrations in the Czech uh, Republic. Um, and and Macron even facing challenges, um, you know, obviously as Marine Le Pen uh, sort of does does gain traction and and is expected by some to succeed him uh, eventually in in in, in office. Um, Vladimir Putin had a pretty uh, bad week. Uh, obviously, not only uh, facing uh, defeat at the hands of Ukrainian forces, the revelation of potential atrocities in Izium. Uh, he met with Xi Jinping, his limitless partner, who told him, our partnership has distinct limits and don't expect us to help you all that much. Uh, and then Narendra Modi um, lectured, um, uh, I, I think, remarkably politely, to be honest, uh, and said this is a time not for war, but a time for peace. Uh, which is what he counseled um, but Putin. Putin, wait, you know, has vowed to continue waging the war. What do all these dynamics, uh, Sash, from your standpoint, right? I mean, what does Putin do next? And, you know, should there be worries about European unity going forward? You know, even if Liz Truss and Ursula von der Leyen and Olaf Scholz, you know, and Macron, I mean, everybody really is kind of hanging together with the exception of Orban and a couple of other guys. I mean, how do you view this sort of broader dynamic and how it translates to, to national security and economy. I'm very careful about talking about European unity and expecting it to cover everything. I think you can have, on occasion, uh, European unity on, on individual issues. And the greatest unity at the moment is over Ukraine. And that's a very, very good thing. Um, there is still quite a lot, but it breaks down at the edges and country by country over how to deal with uh, the energy crisis. And, you know, then as you go further down the chain, um, every country has its own, you know, particular uh, democracy, democratic cycle and, and views on, uh, you know, what matters to them. I, I, I think it's utterly unrealistic to expect Europe to, um, to, to speak, vote, think, behave uh, in, in the same way on, on more than a, a very small number of things at, a, at any one time. Me, I'll take Ukraine at the moment. Um, that you know, that seems to me to be the uh, the most important. And it, and if the only holdout is uh, Viktor Orban, then again, I'll I'll take that as well. It will be very interesting to see how um, the uh, you know a new Italian government um, with a a centre or a, a right wing uh, stance treats um, uh, and and deals with Russia. Uh, Italy has to be quite careful because it's getting enormous. Uh, subsidies from the EU at the moment. Uh, and so I think that that probably cuts them slightly less political um, slack than, uh, than they would like to claim when they're, when they're you know, uh, on the stump for, uh, uh, ahead of uh, election. Um, yeah, as far as the, uh, you know, the Putin um, meetings with Xi and Modi is concerned, um, I, mean, I don't think Modi was unusually polite. You know, India has historically been or claims to be a neutral state, you know, or a non-aligned right. state. It was always, it always saw its position as being head of the non-aligned states, although it managed to do that and buy huge amounts of arms from Russia. It clearly, in the short term, needs huge amount of arms from Russia. And in terms of its relationship with Russia, uh, it works or functions on the basis of my enemy's enemy is my friend. 
Um, and uh, you know, it needs some sort of support against China. The only support that they're going to get in the short term in terms of military equipment or enough military equipment is from Russia. And they also get uh, oil and fertilizer, which India needs to function. I, I think the fact that he even said what he did was remarkable. And my takeaway from both the comments from uh, Modi and Xi is the red lines about weapons of mass destruction, but particularly nuclear, are unbelievably strong and you know inviolable. So it's all very well for Putin to come away and say, oh, you know, I'm, I'm going to do even more and I'm going to do my damnedest. He's been told by his two biggest allies, no, you're not. And that is uh, that's a that's a very, very important message. And and does it change the vector of where we are? It changes one of the uh, one of the wild card, card outcomes, right? Which is you know you, you, use of nuclear weapons in the uh, in the event that things go wrong. I think the the, the thing that would worry me would be Crimea because I uh, Crimea clearly matters disproportionately to Russia, whether we agree with that or not, and I don't. Uh, and you know the Russians have always claimed that Crimea is Russian, um, but I think. The fact that his backers are saying, you know, our support is is limited or delimited, um, that gives him much less in terms of free, freedom of maneuver uh, than he would like. Right. Um, and, and, and certainly uh, Joe Biden pointing out, I think, in no uncertain terms last week that any unconventional uh, weapons use uh, by the Russians would would not be tolerated. Uh, Richard, you've been very patient. You know, bring, bring us together on all of these themes um, and and what you know economically and otherwise. Uh, and we went a little bit deeper into into the into the war in part because uh, Sash is sitting <laughs> three thousand uh, some odd miles closer to it than we are, um, and 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 suffering through whether it's higher energy costs in a way that we are not as as Americans. Um, even if inflation is taking a bite, uh, and 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 folks are noticing the the price at the at the till every time they get their groceries, what do you think are the drivers and any change in your broader commercial air travel outlook uh, picture? As you know, folks are worrying about re- recession and mortgage rates are going up, and when people have less money to spend, they spend less money getting on airplanes and traveling places, for example. Yeah, there's no question. There's a lot of concern about whether the strength of the air travel demand recovery can uh, overcome the headwinds that are, well, (laughs) everything we just discussed, right? And in terms of cargo, it's, well, big risk that they can't, uh, because, of course, cargo is the most sensitive to, you know, advanced economic indicators and whatever else. And uh, there's so much capacity coming online in terms of uh, new conversion lines and, of course, uh, orders for converted and new freighters. I, I think people are valid, have valid worries there. In terms of uh, consumer demand for actual air transport, you know, we're, we're right on course with one big glaring exception. You know, right now we're about 25% down from the 2019 peak, but it's really a question of eh, not much down at all versus 50% down, which is Asia. And when we talk about Asia, of course, it's, it's China leading the way. Um, China international traffic right now is non-existent. It's 99% down from where it was. That's pretty extraordinary. They're cut off from the world and they're going to stay that way through, of course, the party Congress in October and perhaps even beyond that. Uh, domestically, they're practically just as bad, something like 60% down. 
Japan is down two in South Korea, but they both got rebound plans with Japan announcing a plan to get from 20K passengers to 50K passengers in, an, uh, in a relatively short amount of time. Full recovery is like 120 or something like that. Um, so most of Asia is starting to think about coming back, but China is the great big mystery. And considering, of course, that was the biggest international growth market in the entire jetliner business, that is a cause for some concern, especially since I, as I never tire of pointing out, that was a pre-existing concern prior to the pandemic. Um, everything else, you know, things seem to be coping reasonably well. We have moved our air travel recovery and, oh boy, was I ever wrong about this. But, you know, my, the good people I work with at Aerodynamic now think it's 2025 because of this big China question. Everything else is back way before then, but China is producing this very unexpected drag on the recovery. Um, so that has certainly changed. Everything else, we're right on course. And I think, you know, it, it's, it's interesting. We, as an industry, greatly, you know, got hit first and foremost by the, by, by the pandemic and kept getting hit. But I, I now think our recovery is relatively immune from the economic and political headwinds that we're seeing, even in Europe, where and they are a lot closer to the front lines. The numbers aren't that different from North America. People are flying again, and that's wonderful. There are concerns about having to route thin air flights away from the Eurasian landmass and whatever else for obvious reasons. But in terms of people's propensity to fly, despite high energy costs, despite the risk of a recession, whatever else, um, you know, and again, we're constrained more by the supply side. 16% of the fleet is still parked. I think the demand would be there for some of it to come back. It's just a question of getting things uh, organized in terms of personnel and, and, and whatever else. So it's not going to be as difficult as it was this summer in terms of cancellations and delays, at least I hope. I think we'll probably be able to recover some of our bearings with the slightly less aggressive comeback numbers in the fall. But nevertheless, uh, we're just as, uh, in some ways, supply constrained as we were. I want to go go around the horn uh, on this and and get to uh, Greg Hayes's comments about Boeing's market share and and the Airbus Capital Markets Day uh, as well. But um, Richard, I mean, start us off on the decoupling, right? Uh, we've been talking about this on the program also for a very long period of of, of time. Uh, Greg Hayes. Uh, the CEO of Raytheon Technologies, sanctioned by the Chinese Communist Party, uh, and uh, Ted Colbert, uh, the head of Boeing Defense, uh, Space and Security, uh, getting sanctioned uh, as well. And all of this is happening at a time when Chinese authorities are getting ready to certify the C-919, uh, an, an airplane that would not be possible if it wasn't for American uh, and European and a whole bunch of others components, uh, you know, on those uh, on on the airplane, right? Um, so I mean, it's not you know, it, it may be a triumph for Comac, uh, but it's not an all Comac airplane. Right? It's not an all Chinese airplane. Um, how do how do these you know how does this development strike you? What does it tell you? How is it that we need to be thinking about it? Yeah, there's so much to talk about and think about here. You know, the most interesting aspect of it, of course, was, as you pointed out before, the Xi-Putin uh, meeting, where it's almost as though Soviet Union 2.0, let's go down the Cold War path again. Let's completely decouple. Let's get together and form our own axis of stupidity. And that's somehow <laughs> looking a little less appealing. And just his, you know, obviously the, you know, questions and concerns. That was a fascinating moment. And of course, not being fluent speakers, I'm sure there's there's so much more to it than that. Um, 
a very welcome development in my mind. Now, the reality, though, is that, you know, it the sanctioning thing, too, not a good thing. But on the other hand, they didn't go after Calhoun. They made a point of saying head of defense. You know, I think it would have been and going after Craig Hay is not good. But, you know, again, it's a supplier. And it's a, you know, a company that's primarily known for missiles and radars and things like that. So, but if they made a point of sanctioning the CEO of Boeing itself, I think that would have been more aggressive. So I'm actually going to take a kind of glass half full sort of approach here. They didn't go after, they went after the head of defense, which was inevitable. And, you know, from a Colbert and Hayes standpoint, Colbert and Hayes standpoint, uh, you know, this just means they don't have the opportunity to be held hostage in China. Good for them. They don't have to be. Uh, now, from the standpoint of the C919, it's fascinating. I, you know, the news broke that certification was imminent, possibly uh, this week, and I almost began to feel a bit of nostalgia because this really was a creature of ten years ago when decoupling was not an issue. China was racing to join the global aviation industry. They wanted their own Me Too plane. That's fine. They were willing to, you know. Obviously, there were concerns about intellectual property theft, but at the end of the day, it was a product of the free trade era. Now it is not. It is not a Chinese plane. As you point out, it's a it's you know a very heavily Western triumph for Comac. They did the skin. Hooray! Wow, they can make aluminum skin. Uh, everything else that makes this plane a plane is Western, which means it comes with an onboard kill switch. Anytime they decide to close the borders and only allow Chinese airlines to buy Chinese jets, it's instantly dead. The Canadian government did this with the MA700 turboprop last year. They said, yeah, you can't have a turboprop. Good luck building a turboprop aircraft. And of course, that plane seems to be thoroughly on the shelf after 10 years of development. So this is kind of a nostalgic moment where, you know, oh, wow, this was one we were all going to be part of the same team. Now, getting back to that theme of Putin and Xi, they have to make a choice. Do they want to close the borders, reinvent the 919, which would take probably a dozen years and probably 15, 20 billion dollars to, rec to recreate Chinese versions of all of the equipment on board? Or do they want to say, yeah, let's dial back this whole bellicosity, this whole, you know, allying with a with an aggressive fascist power. Let's let's rethink this. I, I there's still hope, I guess, is what I'm saying. Right. I mean, if you're she uh, and your economy is in the position it's in and it's getting slammed and you continue to do covid lockdowns, which is not helping your economy um, and real estate bubbles and everything else going on. Now's not the best time to pick a fight with the United States um, and and to have. China be on the receiving end of what the West is doing to Russia, um, you know, I, is is something that clearly uh, is is weighing on his uh, on his uh, mind. Um, and if I could just so, quickly add to that, just as sure, a sort sure. of brief uh, brief afterthought, gee, favor an indigenous product, block imports, and um, of course muzzle the press and make sure the regulators fall in line too. That's how they did it with vaccines, with predictably lethal consequences. Did they want to do that with civil aviation as well? Exactly. Um, really quickly, want to uh, go around the horn on that. Uh, Ron, want to get your your sense, uh, Sash, yours before we move on to the whole market share uh, discussion and want to get everybody's take on uh, Adaptive Engine and, and then bring your guys uh, around on thoughts uh, on uh, the Air Force Association's annual airspace cyber conference and trade show on this, as I mentioned at the top of the program, the 75th uh, anniversary of the United States Air Force. Go ahead, Ron. It, it's interesting, right? I mean, I think you know, kind of what we've heard is 
Monday is September 19th, right? So Monday's nine, one, nine. And it turns out nine is a lucky number. Uh, one is a neutral number and nine is a lucky number. So it's sort of a lucky day for them to certify the plane. That being said, to Richard's point, I mean, it's highly dependent on you know, sort of the usual suspects in the, in the aero supply chain. I guess there is some scurrying about in China going on about trying to get a domestic engine, but it's, there's a lot of other stuff that has to happen for it to, to be. Um, and, and then, you know, further, I think Richard's observation that it was, you know, Boeing's defense unit that was highlighted by China, not the overall business, I think implies that, you know, sooner or later, um, when the Chinese economy does eventually open up, um, and, I, and I think we all assume it does, that, that at some point, um, these COVID lockdowns have to stop. And I think the thinking was, it would happen sooner than it did. And it hasn't, uh, but when it does, they're going to need lift, right? And that lift will not be um, 100% or even close to that supplied by um, the 919. Uh, Airbus can get some of it, but they're ultimately going to need some Boeing airplanes. Uh, just the big question becomes when, right? And you know, Boeing's comments publicly by both the CEO and CFO this past week suggesting that, you know what, the 737s that have been sitting around since 2018 um for various reasons um some boeing inflicted some not um they're going to start you know shipping those off to other customers and um so anyway i mean it's kind of kind of is what it is where it is so we'll see what happens on monday if the aircraft actually gets certified there was some thinking that you know the max could get a green light after um the uh the 919 got certified because that all got blown out the door um uh last week and and, and my sense is that's probably what weighed on boeing a bit because um, you think about, at least in the narrow body market, China's what, 20% of the market. Um, and if Boeing's not going to be participating in that for a while, um, that's a, you know, it's a big chunk of the market not to be playing it. Sash? I, I'd, I'd make two points, actually, uh, on that, following up from, um, from Ron Richard. I mean, the first is this thing of certificating an aircraft on a, you know, on a lucky date. Surely they have learned by now from, from Boeing and the 787. You know, uh, at picking a lucky date and then forcing an event onto that date. Um, you know, 787 rolled out on the um, 8th of July. Well, that all went well, didn't it? Uh, deciding you're going to certificate it on the 9th of September for some uh, crazy, or sorry, 19th of December, uh, September. Why? Do it when the aircraft is ready and only when the aircraft is ready. Because the benefits you get from doing it on some you know, lucky date is absolutely outweighed by, uh, you know, the sort of forcing you have to do and the, you know, the cutting corners you have to do to get there. So I, I was appalled when I read that article and I really thought that was what, you know, is one of the dumbest things I've seen. Um, I, I think the um, point that Rich was making about decoupling and how, you know, if the Chinese pushed uh, all of this to, um, you know, to, to a head and, and the US then pressed the kill switch is a really, really interesting one because what the Chinese aerospace industry needs is actually experience of delivering civil aircraft, which it has only ever done with the ARJ-21 at low rate. The ARJ-21, they produce a, you know, a couple of dozen a year. It's starting to be by Chinese standards, but by no one else's standards in the world, actually a half decent program in terms of rate. But Comat does not have the experience of a high level, you know, high level, high volume manufacturing, and even more high volume handover of fully functioning aircraft to demanding commercial clients, um, and then supporting them in the field 
with a dispatch rate up in the very, very high 90s, which is the standard that Boeing and Airbus set and, you know, all, always deliver on. And so actually the, the thing that Comac and China needs more than anything else is actually to produce the 919 at a decent rate so that they can learn how to do all of that properly. Because otherwise, all of those skills uh, reside in, in Airbus's plant in Tianjin. And if Boeing ever had a plant that was working, uh, doing more than just painted seats, um, you know, it, there as well. And that's an enormous uh, leap for the Chinese. Uh, so I don't think they can afford to do this. We actually did, modeled the uh, C919 uh, the way that we do any other program, uh, you know, just as a as, a, as an interesting uh, process, because it's a funny uh, program, very, very few airline orders, but a slew of orders from Chinese banks and leasing companies. They've all been told to order quite, quite clearly. And they've been, uh, you know, they've been told this is underwritten. Anything that you order, you will be able to place with the big three uh, later on. And that, that's fine. That's how centrally planned economies work. And on that basis, and, you know, Going into the second half of the decade, were the 919 to progress relatively smoothly from here, they might be delivering, um, uh, you know, 80, 90 aircraft a year. That would be a very, very good program for the Chinese. That'd be a very good program, actually, by the standards of anybody else except right. um, Boeing, Airbus, and historically McDonnell Douglas. And that would give them the industrial skills that they need and the scale they need to, to, to be independent. But to cut all that off now would be jaw-droppingly stupid and damaging and then i think the chinese would not be able you know would not be able to have an aircraft industry whereas paradoxically the russians can because they've been doing this for years um let's uh move uh to uh market share airbus uh capital markets day that's uh going to be at the latter part of uh next week um so for anybody who wants to go to the air force association you've got a couple of days to do that before you have to fly uh, to france and make it there uh, what the factory tour is on Thursday and, and the capital markets day itself is on Friday. Um, Ron, uh, start us off. What did you make of uh, the statement um, uh, that, you know, Raytheon, you know, which is a major supplier to Boeing, expects Boeing to have 40% of the narrow body market by 2025? Uh, and the interesting Wall Street feedback you're getting that Boeing might not be misguided in not building a new airplane yeah so i mean a couple of different points there to unpack uh, you know, greg hayes um speaking publicly at a conference said that you know they expect they uh, raytheon technologies airbus to get to 65 per month uh on a320s by 2025 14 per month on a220s um by the same time frame and on 737s uh, they expect Boeing to get to 48 per month. Uh, so you just take those numbers and you don't include the A220s, you're at about, I think that's 42% market share for uh, for Boeing. And if you actually throw in the A220s, which I would, because they're actually narrowed by the aircraft, um, that puts you at 38% market share for Boeing. Uh, and that's at a count of 10 aircraft below where Airbus would like to be at that time. We'll see if Airbus gets there. Uh, you know, Sash can, can talk about that more than, than I can, but from any interaction I've had with them, they seem pretty serious about getting a 75. Um, but the, 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 the point is it just to hear one of the, the biggest uh, commercial air suppliers in the world, if not the biggest, um, just saying, hey, yeah, we're planning to Boeing being about 40% market share. You know, that's not, you know, just me talking or us talking or experts or this, that. that's a, just a major supplier and that's what they're planning to. 
So, you know, the, what we've been talking about for a while about, you know, Boeing getting to that share, call it 35 to 40% of the narrow body market, it's a fait accompli at this point. We kind of knew that, but to hear that said by a, a major player, I really kind of nails the point home. And then on the other side, you know, the, which brought up, you know, something we discussed a little bit is, you know, I've, I've for a while have thought Boeing um, has underinvested in engineering and um, that they do need to do a new airplane and there's a lot of good reasons for it. There's, there is a view um, that I don't necessarily agree with that, you know, maybe they shouldn't. Uh, every time they do a new airplane, they tend to be less profitable than the previous airplane. Um, and uh, there's some truth to that you know, just following history. And, you know, if you assume that, you know, geez, these guys just really can't do new airplanes um, any better than they could before. In fact, it's always going to go worse. And maybe that's a logical conclusion. I still hold hold hope out, and maybe it's my, my engineering background, um, that yeah, you can actually do this right. Um, if you look at companies that have done it, you know, I think you know, you know, Slash can talk about this. A three fifty went quite well for for Airbus, um, you know, where they ended up. Uh, and then if you look at a company like Gulfstream, and I'll argue all day long that Gulfstream is the best airplane company in the world for all kinds of reasons. But they do a fantastic job of balancing investment and return and, and taking care of their customers and their aftermarket better than any, any airplane company on the planet. So you can do it. Um, and that's that's kind of where I fall out. But, you know, there is a view that you know, there's a time and place to do it. And it's just not now. Um, I would uh, I would also point out that no company has recovered um, from that low a market position uh, without you know, state help, right? I mean, you, you, the only time you could ever say that that happened is when Airbus was growing um, at a time when, you know, governments were giving it support um, and, um, uh, and, and sort of help it get, uh, you know, into an established going uh, concern. Uh, Sash and Richard, uh, your guys uh, take as well. And if you want to add a little bit of capital markets uh, input uh, into that uh, as well would be great because uh, time is running short. And I do want to talk about the alternate engine briefly, uh, as well as uh, what you guys, uh, Ron and Richard, expect to hear uh, from Air Force uh, leadership at the, the, or industry uh, at the upcoming AFA. Go, go ahead, Ron, and, and then Richard. Okay. Um, uh, so, I mean, first of all, just a couple of points on the, on, on the market share issue. Um, it's actually quite important to remember that it, what Boeing will be doing is recovering to a 40% market share because at the moment it's down sub 30. It's about, you know, it, it, it's, it, it's well sub 30 because it's only delivering, um, you know, 300, 300 lots, 350 plus, uh, or producing that many aircraft uh, a year at the moment. Uh, it's clearly got a backlog of, of maxes to get rid of. It recovers to... Um, uh, you know, to to forty percent by 2025, with you know, as you say, with with a following wind, and probably ultimately, if they're going to uh, do a new program successfully, some form of of government support that would make sense for the US government. You know, this is a nationally important uh, business. I I take some issue with um, Greg Hayes on his his mixture of Airbus narrowbody stuff because he clearly favours aircraft that he is um uh he's powering there's no way that airbus is going to be producing 14 a220s a month because they haven't got the orders the order book for the a220 is actually really hasn't changed very much um and uh, so i'm an view is that a220 will be being produced at eight a month and uh, a320 will be, be being produced in 2025 at 69 a month um a320 is clearly split with uh, with ge as well but yeah you know uh, it's a very very hard uh, market share advantage that Airbus has got for, for Boeing to recover from. 
Completely. So what are we expecting from the, from Airbus Capital Markets Day? Um, I think Airbus is going to be very careful not to be triumphalist. I think they are aware that if something can go wrong, it generally does. Um, I think that they can't believe their luck at the moment. Uh, they have been preparing for a, you know, the next generation uh, and uh, some form of new aircraft development. They're aware that their R&D will have to rise from the current trough. Um, uh, you know, if you uh, look at Airbus's R&D at the moment, it's you know running at around two and a half billion, having peaked at three or nearly three. Uh, it will probably, on our forecast, rise to about four and a half billion by the end of the decade, because that's the cost of new generation aircraft. Uh, and they will have at least one on the go by then, plus a whole slew of derivatives as well. But the longer that Boeing puts off um, uh, launching its, its own new narrow body, the more Airbus can, can milk the profits on the uh, A320neo in particular. And that's a phenomenally uh, positive position. But I think they're going to be very, very careful not to sound triumphalist on that. Otherwise, I think it's show, showing that they have, they've weathered the pandemic and that they can manage the ramp. Most important um, message for me. Uh, Richard? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I'd go slightly in the other direction. I think, if anything, Greg Hayes was being a little bit uh, optimistic about Boeing getting to 40%. We don't even know about Max 10 certification, although it is worthwhile noting that uh, this week, Calhoun said there was still a chance that it actually got certified this year. But assuming that it doesn't, which is the likelier case, then they don't seem to have a game plan <laughs> other than one more move and we kill the program, which was certainly Calhoun's message back last June. Um, I mean, this looks like a market that is extremely heavily favoring Airbus. Boeing continues to underperform in terms of deliveries. Um, they can still do better. They can still do much better, which brings up, um, you know, Ron's relaying of that opinion. Um, and boy, do I not agree. You know, the idea that somehow 787 wasn't profitable because of pricing power. No, 787 wasn't profitable because of a really bad technical screw up. Ditto for the max. You know, if you don't, if, if you don't screw up, if you provide the adequate resources and management culture needed to get a program going on time, profits are pretty good. Hence, uh, you know, as Ron said, the 350 XWB, that is exactly evidence of that. So I just don't see the argument, especially hearkening back to Sash. Um, the alternative is, is, uh, is, is not just, oh, we're happy with 40%. No, the alternative is marginalization. And as you, Vago says, it's very difficult to reverse that share drop. So welcome to 25, I mean 20, I mean 15. I mean, you just go extinct. And that, of course, is what happened to McDonnell Douglas. So the idea of replicating that rather than mo you know, putting the resources necessary and management culture change necessary into creating a profitable new program as they did with the 777 uh, and the 777-300ER, um, I, I just don't understand that argument at all. And uh, I should point out that the 787 uh, is a gift that uh, does keep on giving, uh, sadly, for Boeing as, as the company tries to rectify uh, problems with aircraft. Uh, and Ron, uh, really quickly, give us your capital markets day, right? Even though uh, Sash is the central analyst on it, and as you joke, sometimes you're the tourist on this trip, uh, you know, what, what is what is it you expect to hear? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm really kind of looking at it from a, you know, a you know, Boeing investor's point of view. And, you know, I'm really interested in you know, supply chain in Europe, how Airbus is thinking about things like titanium, how Airbus is thinking about the energy crisis and what's that, what that means for their supply chain. And I, and I think what's very, very interesting is how they're thinking about the supply chain in North America. 
And because ultimately, if they really are going to get to rate 75, they probably have to expand their supply chain and, and look at suppliers that maybe are more heavily weighted or historically have a, a weighting towards Boeing uh, and try to recruit some of those suppliers. So I, you know, one of the things I'm really interested in trying to, to, to sort out uh, while I'm there is how they're thinking about supply chain strategy in the current environment and given you know, their relative advantage to Boeing right now, um, you know, how they're going to leverage that. Uh, quick uh, goodbye uh, to Stash uh, because he's got to sign off and we're going to continue uh, the conversation. Stash, thanks very much for joining us and look forward to your take uh, on uh, Capital uh, Markets Day uh, as well. Yeah, thanks very much, Argo. And Ron, I'll see you in Toulouse. Cheers. Looking forward to it. R- Richard, uh, real quick, uh, adaptive uh, cycle engine. Obviously, uh, there were two. Uh, there was the second engine, the General Electric, uh, and Rolls were working on. Uh, and then in the for the sake of efficiency, that program was canceled, and Pratt & Whitney's F-135 was uh, the engine for uh, the Joint Strike Fighter. And then an adaptive engine program was launched by the United States Air Force to drive the state-of-the-art. That competition is um, those the two that got uh, contracts under that program were Pratt and Whitney that evolved the F-135 engine. And then you had uh, General Electric come out with the XA-100. Um, those engines have, have been in test. Uh, and um, you know, General Electric touts that its claims about the range, uh, the power, and other uh, elements uh, of this new power plant uh, justify its potential inclusion as an alternate engine to the F-35 and indeed in any other uh, capacity. Um, Pratt & Whitney making the case this is just a complete utter waste of money and we should just stick with uh, the F-135 uh, power plant. Um, if, if you can justify and it is verifiable that you can have a 30% range increase for the F-35, that's huge and addresses a lot of the challenges that Pacific commanders have with a jet that is a shorter range jet, not a longer range uh, airplane. Uh, but even in war game scenarios, if you can you know, do things with energetics and, you know, you can scotch some of these ranges out from 10 to 20 to 30%, they become really game-changing in the context of a Pacific scenario. So to walk us through where we are on this program, as, uh, you know, General Electric announced last week that they were wrapping up uh, testing of the uh, second engine, their second engine at the Arnold uh, Development Center. Uh, so the Air Force is verifying these test results. And, you know, the Secretary of the Air Force, Frank Kendall, has said, hey, we've got to make a decision sooner or later whether we incorporate this uh, into, into the F-35. And if you listen to folks at Lockheed, they're like, hey, look, the airplane keeps getting heavier. So the more power we have and the more range, the more relevant our product is. Uh, even though they're happy with Pratt as their engine partner, they're also open. But walk us through where we are and where we're going uh, with, with all of this. Yeah, it's a fascinating moment in time. I think it's one of those times where uh, the, the engineers begin to give a little ground to economists. There's always that tension between the two groups. And I think this was one of those weeks in the history of adaptive engines. From an engineering standpoint, I, you know, there's no question variable cycle has a lot to offer. I, I sometimes, however, do feel like we're running the risk of doing the variable geometry wing thing back from the 60s and 70s, which turned out not to be worth the additional weight, expense, and uh, complexity and whatever else. But right now, it, it, pending verification in the tests, it looks very promising. Um, now, the problem is that two things happened this week that were, were really intriguing. One was someone started talking actual cost effectiveness numbers. And they said, yes, this will be $6 billion to introduce it to the F-35. For that, you could buy 70 
F-35As. In other words, yes, it would be nice to have a plane with the additional capabilities, uh, or you could have 70 more jets. You have to make a choice. There's no free lunch, and you're not in, in an era of unlimited budgets. Just good budgets, not amazing budgets. And that was that was sort of a stark, uh, I guess, contrast of, of messages. The other thing that took place was um, GE came out and said, you know what, we're really excited about leveraging this technology for NGAD. And, and of course the motor on that is gonna be somewhat different, but it's, yeah, it's gonna leverage exactly the same variable uh, bypass variable geometry uh, technology. That seemed to me to say, you know, maybe the F-35 just isn't a particularly Pacific machine. I mean, it sounds great, but if you go from, I don't know, a 600 nautical mile range to 850, are you really conquering the tyranny of range in the Pacific relative to pushing the cash straight over to an NGAD class plane that does presumably a 1500 or 2000 or whatever that thing's going to be baselined at? Uh, that was an interesting comment too. In other words, you know, look, resources are fungible and limited. And uh, you know, do you want to spend all this money making the F-35 a better mousetrap? Or do you want to put it into a mix of more F-35s and NGAD? Uh, and of course, from GE standpoint, maybe it's better rather than trying to contest F-35, maybe it's best to conquer uh, NGAD and just go for the next generation. Um, and of course, Pratt has its variable geometry, the XA-101, uh, but GE has a lot more runway in terms of working with variable geometry, because as she said, the original F-136 or the original, actually the original YF-120 for the F-20, right. uh, the ATF back in the day was variable. They've been working on this for some time. So to me, it was a, it was a fascinating moment. I, I don't know what people will decide, but it sure seemed as though all of a sudden calling resources into question was a signal that this wasn't the instant, you know, visa-free paths towards a uh, pass towards, uh, you know, a, a, a better, heavier, more cooled, more capable F-35, but rather a moment of inflection where they had to thought about, think about resource allocation. Um, but if you look at it, right, 1763 is the U.S. Air Force number, at least program of record number. You're talking about 70 from that and gaining a lot more relevance for the airplanes that you're ultimately fielding. And it doesn't take anything away from NGAD either. And by the way, I'm not trying to sell anything for anybody. As anybody who knows me knows, I've been sort of making this case that competition is very, very important. You know, we saw that the engine competition was something that was valuable uh, in the days of the, uh, you know, F-16, F-15 era uh, and getting GE and Pratt to duke it out. Airplanes have a tendency of getting heavier. So having some more thrust margin is something important. And again, to me, range is all important. And again, right, NGAD and F-35 do two different things. One is a strike fighter. The other is an air dominance airplane whose job it is to maintain air superiority, sort of the way the F-22 does it. Um, you know, even though the F-35 does do uh, some of the, uh, some of those, uh, some of those missions. Um, Ron, is there anything you want to add to this before we go to F-30 uh, uh, a AFA uh, takeaways? Uh, no, I mean, Richard covered everything. Yep. All right. Uh, terrific. So what is it you guys expect to hear uh, and hope to hear, want to hear, uh, or expect to get out of uh, the air uh, uh, space and cyber conference this year. Ron, why don't you maybe uh, start it off, right? I mean, always an important opportunity for Air Force leadership to talk directly to industry. Uh, and the Air Force secretary happens to be somebody who was, you know, the head of Pentagon procurement technology and logistics once upon a time. Yeah, I mean, a couple of things, really. I mean, more on uh, all the engine um, 
um, stuff that Richard was talking about uh, and kind of where that's going. I think getting some clarity there uh, is important. Uh, NGAD in general, I mean, there's been more, more news kind of trickling out over time uh, about NGAD. I would imagine that's, that's going to come up. Um, uh, F-35 production rates and how do we think about that? Um, you know, production rates are probably lower than anybody thought there would be and international interest is maybe a little bit higher at this point than a lot of people thought it would be. So how do you circle that? Um, no, hypersonics, uh, you know, I mean, there's been um, talk in industry about hypersonics, but not a heck of a lot of details. We can get some, some uh, more feeling, feeling on that. And then, you know, was, uh, there's an interesting, maybe provocative statement that came out of the Russians, um, actually the Russians, Putin, saying that, you know, commercial satellites during times of war are fair targets. And, you know, we've got this, you know, proliferating and uh, growing uh, commercial uh, satellite uh, and commercial space industry. How do we think about that? And what would happen if, you know, the Russians uh, were to an attack uh, a commercial U.S. Earth imagery satellite or a commercial U.S. Um, uh, communication satellite? And how do they think about that? So sort of the interplay, the interplay between, you know, commercial space and military space and, and what's going on. In Eastern Europe, I guess those are things that are top of mind. And uh, real quick, uh, Richard, as we wrap up. Yeah, I mean, certainly all of those things. The only things I would uh, add to Ron's, uh, you know, list of important stuff to be discussed is B twenty one bit of clarity, you know, because of course it's rumored to be getting to that day where it's rolled out. So maybe they'll give us a few hints and previews. Uh, and there's rumored to be a bit of you know news flow on that. And, uh, you know, I probably too early for anything, any much more than we've already gotten on NGAD. The other thing I would add is just a bit more, well, as Ron said, hypersonics, you know, for me, the most interesting thing, and here again, it's a moment where economists and engineers um, begin to shift roles or begin to talk amongst each other for the first time in a while. And, you know, what are the economics of hypersonics? <laughs> Something that uh, Frank Kendall and other folks have pointed out in a conventional mission, you'd better have an extremely high value target to justify expending these. So you've got all these hypersonic programs. Is there actually a business case in terms of warfighting cost effectiveness to be made? You know, if it's just nukes, I understand that even less because if it's nukes, well, <laughs> game over as far as I'm concerned. But nevertheless, it's going to be really interesting from that perspective. Um, I, I, I would say I think he's on the right track, air breathing hypersonics where you can start uh, to get those ranges to have that kind of a capability, but not do it uh, at a cost that's that's absolutely ruinous, whether it's, you know, 30, 37 million. I mean, I think the Navy's prompt global strike uh, conventional capability is running around 37 million dollars a piece. That is that's what makes it very, very pricey and unaffordable. But if you go in the air breathing option, which is what he's interested in, uh, you know, and and you can get these on airplanes that can get it closer to the fight and do have some reach, then you do have a game changing capability. I mean, ultimately, I think, you know, anybody who pushes against the notion of hypersonic, I mean, misses the point. Our our, our adversaries are doing it. So we may want to stick with crossbows. But they're going to rifles, right? They're going to a firearm, and it just makes sense at that point uh, to be in it. I, I'm I'm interested in hearing more about munitions. Um, across the board, we have munitions shortfalls, and we need a lot more things to reach out and touch uh, people, uh, as we're seeing in you know Ukraine and our European allies are tapped out, and we're the arsenal that replenishes their stocks, and we don't have an ability to replenish our stocks at nearly the same rate. I mean, it's it's just stupefying to me that El Razm, um, you know, the long range anti ship missile has been a top Indo Pacific commander's priority since Rat Willard's days, 
And in like 2026, we're going to get to like 425 weapons or whatever the programmer record is. I mean, it's just absurd. And in every war game, that becomes like the critical munition. So as far as I'm concerned, we should be building JASM ERs. We should be building LRASMs. We have to build stuff that can reach out and touch adversaries in far, far greater range, whether that's ATACM, whether it's guided MLRS, uh, because, you know, you're showing that you know, people go like, well, it's only an 80-mile missile. L look at the effectiveness with which the Ukrainians helped by American targeting are putting to use um, HIMARS. It's, it's pretty amazing. So, uh, And that little clip I shared with you guys, right? I mean, how many stingers did those guys fire to knock down that SU-25? Four, five, right? So, you know, and we're even running out of, of weapons at, a, at that short range. So that's what I'm, I'm going to be, one of the things I'm uh, going to be listening to. And of course, culture change, uh, where I think... Uh, the chief uh, and the secretary and and the entire Air Force leadership team deserve a lot of credit for uh, in terms of driving culture change. Anyway, guys, thanks very much. Uh, honor and pleasure. Look forward to having you back on again next week with some commentaries. Uh, Ron, uh, want to get your take, obviously, uh, from uh, Capital Markets Day, Sash as well, and, and you, uh, Richard, and I hope to see you guys at AFA. Thanks very much again. Really appreciate it. Uh, have a great day, uh, a great week, and we'll see you next week. Yeah, great to be here, Vago. Thanks. As always, enjoyed it a lot, Bago. Thank you. And as we part, we dedicate today's program to the memory of Sir Robert Walmsley, a retired Royal Navy Vice Admiral and Submariner who devoted his life to British and transatlantic security. His untimely passing was a shock, and we extend our deepest condolences to his loving wife and our dear friend, Alex Walmsley and the Walmsley family. <laughs>